Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Michael Roberts, who is Professor of Finance at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania. His research spans corporate finance, banking, and asset pricing. Welcome, Michael. Oh, thanks for having me, Gil. Yeah, thanks for doing this. I want to start with your 2014 paper, A Century of Capital Structure, The Leveraging of Corporate America. Uh, in which you say unregulated U.S. corporations dramatically increased their debt usage over the pa- past century. Aggregate leverage, low and stable before 1945, more than tripled between 1945 and 1970, from 11% to 35%, eventually reaching 47% by the early 1990s. That is That is a dramatic increase. <laughs> when you see something like this, Michael, you think, this has to be taxes. I mean, there has to be some benefit for corporations to do that, right? Boy, I'll, I'll tell you, every, every MBA undergraduate finance course would certainly point to taxes as, <laughs> as the first place to look. Yeah. But I, ironically, I, I think if you actually spoke with CFOs, they wouldn't say it was taxes. Uh, C- certainly not based on the survey evidence uh, that, that my, one of my co-authors, John Graham, put together. And so while there, there, there's clearly a tax benefit to using debt when it comes to financing, it, it's really hard to find that effect in the data. And it's really hard to, to get CFOs to say that taxes are sort of a first order motivation for their choice of debt. Um, plus, you know, when you think about it, taxes fell over that period Quite a, by quite a bit, right? In the middle part of the century, certainly personal taxes, but I, I think possibly even corporate taxes, if I recall correctly, um, might have fallen quite a bit. So, so, so taxes aren't the reason for that big rise. Uh, so what, what drove that? Yeah, I, so I, I want to be careful as an academic always, Gil, and, <laughs> and, and, and sort of hedge my bets here. But I, I think if you put me on the spot, I would say it would be a combination of of considerations, beginning with sort of uh, productivity growth and economic expansion. Hmm. Uh, there was just firms were just investing quite a bit more coming out of the war, and so you know they needed funding for that. And with relatively low interest rates, certainly in the middle part of the century, um, debt was fairly attractive. So, so yeah, go ahead. Yeah, is, is it so? So the managers of the firm are they are, are they feeling that their firms are less risky uh, because of the economic growth prospects, and that is that is what's causing it? I, I think that's right. I think that's certainly in part of it. They they see. Look, uh, we've got investment opportunity, profitable investment opportunities. That's going to do two things. One, it's we're going to be acquiring assets that can secure debt, so that's going to help lower the cost of debt. But we've also got, uh, you know, optimistically look, thinking about it, good cash flows to support payments of the debt. 
Yeah. And I think that combination is, is quite powerful uh, in sort of defraying the cost of debt. Uh, you, you couple that with sort of this general aversion to equity financing that managers have for fear, fear of dilution, whether it's rational or not, is a separate issue. But um, debt seems to be the predominant source of external financing for companies. And with that economic expansion, it started taking up a bigger and bigger place in the capital structure of companies. That, that's certainly one reason. Yeah. You know, th there's another reason, though, Gil, that, that's actually quite interesting. It, preferred equity used to be a much more, uh, a much, much more uh, or much larger share of funding for companies at the start of the 20th century. And when you think about it, preferred equity is actually a, a lot like debt without the bankruptcy risk. Right. You, right. you have to pay that quarterly dividend. And if you don't, you're in arrears and you can't pay any dividends to common shareholders until you pay the dividends to, to preferred equity holders because they're senior. And so we saw this also interesting reduction in preferred equity issuances and, and sort of transferal to debt issuance as a preferred source of funding. So that's an yeah. another, another mechanism that was kind of operating behind the scenes. Yeah, so, uh, you know, um, when you talk to CFOs, um, you know, earnings per share is a, is a big metric. And if they want to maintain or increase earnings share, uh, stock buy, buy, buybacks and, you know, really kind of reducing equity <laughs> is a motivation. Uh, and, and so this seems like in that direction, right? One of the I think you're right. I think you're right, Gil. And I think your your comments particularly insightful because it raises a question, which is, you know, what, why is there so much emphasis on EPS or earnings per share? In, in other words, this is something I, I go back and forth with my MBA students every year. You know, many of whom come out of bulge bracket banks uh, with yeah. this intuition, right? You, you don't like share issuances because it's going to inflate the number of shares, which is going to depress my earnings per share. That makes shareholders unhappy and, and, and prices fall. But, you know, when you think about it, when you issue more shares, you'll depress your EPS. But what you're also doing that, that I think people forget is you're delevering the company, right? You're, you're reducing the leverage of the company. And so that earnings stream is actually becoming less risky. So yeah. two things are going on here, Gil, that, that worked, right? You're reducing your earnings per share, but you're, you're making that earnings stream safer. And so when we, when we sort of link that back to shareholder value, things like stock prices, what we really care about, the impact on value is, is less clear. Right. Right. Uh, so... So in this period, 1945 through 1970, mm -hmm. um, was there a desire, uh, desire is not the right word, was there a demand for more risky, um, risky securities in the market? In other words, if firms, um, you know, or deliver and, you know, they, they become less risky, then if market is looking for more risky investments, they can find it. Uh, was there a force like that? It's a great question. I, I think it's entirely possible that maybe, you know, maybe shareholder appetite for risk went up. And so they, you know, they didn't mind buying into more heavily levered firms. But but that, of course, begs the question, if, if I, as a shareholder, I want more risk, I, I can always, in theory, borrow money and sort of leverage on my own account. Um, yeah. but that, that's theory. So, so, so you're right. That, that, that could be one reason. You know what else we found, Gil, that, that, that seemed to play an important role that, that really struck me as odd was actually the, the federal government. Yeah. And, and so, you know, I, I, I walked into my colleague, Andy Abel's office. Andy's a, a macroeconomist here at Wharton. And he actually had a picture up on his screen uh, his computer screen, and, and I looked at it, and, and it looked like the it looked like the picture of leverage from our paper. Whereas our our, our leverage is sort of our, our picture, the lines going up over time. Yeah. His picture was going down right around at the similar slope and similar time periods as as my picture. Yeah. What it was, and and he yeah. said, "Oh, that you know, that's that's uh, federal debt to GDP ratio." 
That's debt to income. And so what it set us down a path exploring was it, it turns out there's this interesting substitution that investors are undertaking between long term bonds issued by the, the U.S. federal government. So treasury bonds, treasury notes and really safe corporate debt, long term corporate debt. So triple A, double A rated stuff. And it turns out there's this interesting sort of crowding out effect that we found between uh, government debt and private debt. So that, that, that's another, a third mechanism behind this sort of run up that we saw in corporate leverage ratios. Because what happened was, right, the, the, the U.S. government uh, ran up a huge debt, a huge debt financing World War II. Yeah. Uh, debt to income, I think, reached around 120% at its peak in the 40s, but then gradually started paying, you know, paying that down and, and the economy grew. At the same time, firms started issuing more and more long-term debt. And so that, that's really what we're sort of seeing is a substitution of corporate debt for government debt in investors' portfolios, and that affects firms' capital structures. Yeah, that, that is that's very interesting, Michael. So um, speculation is always uh, always risky, but uh, we are coming, coming back now. Uh, government debt is is increasing. Um, would we see firms uh, sort of uh, delever <laughs> as we look? Well, forward? that that's the question, uh, Gil. And, and so, <laughs> what you're asking is why haven't I extended my research, my paper until today? Which which we should. And actually probably will. Um, but we have to be a little bit careful. It's a little bit more nuanced. It, it's not that every firm will be uh, will find it more difficult to issue debt in light of the uh, increase in government debt issues. It's really the, the safest firms will face a slightly higher cost. And so it, it's a great question. And it, it, it's actually one we're going to be looking into over the next few months. Yeah, so that so the the safest firms because they are a reasonable proxy to government debt from a from a risk perspective, so they are reasonable substitutes, and hence the crowding out effect, as you mentioned, would be would be affecting them more, right? That's, that's exactly right. That that's exactly long term double AA, A triple A rated debt is a reasonably close substitute to long term government debt. And so it's a long-term safe asset, much like other studies have found um, short-term uh, safe assets in the private sector tend to substitute with T-bills, short-term government debt. Yeah. So um, the, the other factor also, Michael, I was wondering, um, when there is more uncertainty in the macroeconomy, in the markets in general, um, firms want to manage that uncertainty. They they probably want to have more conservative capital structure, right? Also. Absolutely. So on the one hand, right, if I see time, if, if I look forward in time and I, I see much more uncertainty, much more risk, um, yeah. two things are going to happen. One, I, I'm going to recognize that I may have difficulty paying down fixed claims, i.e. debt in the future. It, it may be harder for me to pay down that debt. But remember, right, there's another side to that debt claim, and that's the bank or the bondholder. They're seeing the same thing that managers are seeing, at least as it comes to the macro, as it pertains to the macro economy. And so what's naturally going to happen is the cost of that debt is going to go up. And so that, that the price mechanism is going to work to dissuade me from issuing debt possibly as well. Uh, so there's really two forces going on there. Yeah, I can't quite remember, Michael. I went to business school long time ago. Uh, is, is there a conceptual reason why we have this asymmetry uh, of tax treatment to debt? You know, <laughs> Gil, I'm, I'm chuckling because I think I get that question every single year for the last 20 years that I've been teaching this. 
<laughs> and and it and I keep saying to myself, you know, I'm going to have to ask some some historical accountant why that's the case, right? Why it, why did the government decide back in the I guess it was the 30s or 20s? Why did they decide all of a sudden that interest expense and and not dividends should be yeah. treated as uh, an expense that's tax deductible? And I, I don't have a good answer for that. I just don't know what the motivation is there. I don't know if it was simply inertia in how companies recorded or, or created their P&Ls and interest was yeah. sort of above net income, whereas dividends were below it. So they figured, well, looks like an expense. We'll treat it as such. Um, or there was some better economic rationale at the time. But I, in hindsight, it's really bizarre, right? Because it creates this, Perverse might be a little bit too strong, but it, it creates an, an odd incentive for not just companies, right, right but, but homeowners, right, to use a lot of debt. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, so if we were to eliminate that asymmetry, uh, Michael, could, uh, so what will happen? Would, would that have some beneficial effects in the economy? What, what do you see will happen if you were to one day eliminate that altogether? <sighs> Boy. Okay. Well, certainly a lot of things would likely happen. Um, it'd be hard to imagine that there would be that there wouldn't be any effect on corporate financial policy. Even though I think, I think the evidence suggests that tax effects on corporate leverage and capital structure are, are second order or relatively small compared to other considerations. Um, for, for particularly highly levered transactions and, and think about buyouts. So in the private equity space where a lot of debt is being used, that tax shield yeah. can, can be a big component of the value prop of a lot of PE firms and, and leveraged recaps. So clearly you get rid of that, that that's going to alter sort of the investment dynamics and the financial strategies in, in, in those spaces. Um, but then you also have to think more broadly, if we sort of zoom out from the corporate finance implications, Gil, we got to think about sort of the revenue that the government's taking in. Um, yeah. And that's going to create a whole whole nother set of problems when it comes to sort of the national debt and, and deficits and where are they going to get that extra money? Now, now all that <laughs> said, Gil, I mean, at the end of the day, you know, there isn't some nebulous blob paying these corporate taxes, right? It's it's you, me, and other shareholders. We're, we're paying the taxes. Right. And so yeah. this is sort of a bizarre form of double taxation. Um, and so then the question is, from an efficiency standpoint, and I want to be careful, I'm, I'm, I'm hardly the tax expert, but from an efficiency standpoint, why do the double taxation? Why not simply just tax the shareholders directly? Right, right. Yeah, I mean, at least intuitively, that it seems like it'll be more efficient, it'll be less confusing, at the very least. Um, it, it will be, you know, less effort in accounting and mechanical type activities. And private equity, as you mentioned, is also interesting. So if, if the returns to private equity is largely coming from this tax shield, as you mentioned, um, really sort of a financial engineering uh, to optimize, has nothing to do with operating companies, uh, but really just sort of financial engineering taking taxes into account, one could argue that doesn't really add a lot of, you know, real value to the economy. Yeah, I think you're right. But on the one hand that, that you know, if it's pure financial engineering, it's unclear that there's a lot of social welfare or social benefit created. But I, I think we're doing a little I think you're doing a little bit of a disservice to private equity. And I, I have no dog in, or no bone in this fight, so to speak. Um, but I, I think private equity does quite a bit more than just financial engineering. Number one, they do an enormous amount of work on the operating and strategic side of the of their portfolio companies. Number one. And number yes. two, there's an additional benefit that comes with the the, the use of a lot of debt financing that doesn't get as much attention, which which is sort of the discipline it imposes on the company. Yeah. There's just no room for, for sort of willy-nilly spending and free cash flow uh, off to pet projects, right? So, because you got to make those debt payments. And so 
I think private equity uses to some extent that that financial strategy that that somewhat unique to them to help with their operational and strategic improvements in the company. Yeah, yeah, that is that is that is true. Uh, so yeah, that's an interesting uh, thing too. So debt is sort of a, a discipline imposing thing. And eliminating that completely may not be may not be good. Definitely for the not themselves. Yeah, yeah. So, so I want to go into another paper that you have: uh, the history of the cross section of stock returns. Um, and you say using data spanning the twentieth century, we show that the majority of accounting based return anomalies, including investment, are most likely an artifact of data snooping. Uh, when examined out of sample by moving either backward or forward in time, the average returns and sharp ratios of, all, all, of most anomalies decrease, whereas their volatilities and correlations with other anomalies increase. Uh, so, so what are the anomalies we are talking about here? Can yeah, you give, absolutely. An, give an example? So, so I'll give you just a little bit of backdrop to, to provide some context as well. Yeah. So, a, a very large strand of academic literature and one with particularly practical applications is this notion of, of finding characteristics or signals that can lead to profitable trading strategies or generate alpha, right? Um, and the idea is that I, I can make some investments and earn, earn return in excess of what I should given the risk I'm taking. That, that is alpha. And so th this literature, which, which spans, got to span at least 50 years now, has found so many different signals or firm, which include firm characteristics and, and sort of paths of past stock returns that, that seem to forecast future returns or, 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 or mm -hmm. identify strategies for which you can generate alpha. So to be specific, um, Size, for example, right? We, we, there's this notion that that small firms tend to outperform or earn higher returns than large firms. Um, there's many other characteristics. You know how much a firm tends to invest or grow, how profitable a firm is, and so right. The idea is that if you sort of sort firms along these characteristics you know, you get this really big spread in returns, whereas really profitable firms seem to earn high returns next year and, and less profitable firms, low returns, for example. And, and so what we, what we did is we just, we said, wait a second. You know, it, it seems as if there's a hundred different things that predict returns. Is it, is it really that easy? And so yeah. what my co-author Jahani and I did is, is we exploited this data set that John Graham and Mark Leary and I collected for another project that went back to the start of the 20th century before any of these papers had data or, or were written. And, and what we did yeah. is we, we, we repeated the, their analysis using historical data as sort of an out-of-sample test. And what happened is we, we didn't find anything. M most of these anomalies, as they're called, these sort of strategies that generate alpha, don't do it out of sample. So, so, so sort of the, the punchline of the paper, one of the punchlines of the paper is, you know, it seems as if there's quite a bit of data snooping bias in a lot of these asset pricing anomalies. And and I want to be careful. That shouldn't be misinterpreted as the authors doing something uh, nefarious or wrong. Just simply not having the luxury or or not having done uh, out of sample testing, which is just paramount I mean, of paramount importance. Right. And so so let me see if I understand this, Michael. So so there there are many you know kind of specific things we can note, but more broadly. Uh, if we see a pattern uh, during during a period of time, that is sort of free alpha. So, you know, uh, small firms, as you mentioned, as an example, let's say small firms have have alpha and large firms have alpha, uh, have no, uh, no alpha, 
you could have a trading strategy uh, that could capture almost free alpha looking forward, right? You could predict uh, a portfolio's alpha uh, by just using historical data. Now that seems um, that seems unlikely, uh, but but I think what you're finding in this paper is that if you if you take a horizon in history that appeared to be true, right? Um, it, was was that the was no, that absolutely, the, uh, that's right. Issue? So so you know the you you can you can find a world a, a, a sample of data. And if I look in that sample, what I can do is to, to use the, 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 the size uh, anomaly, which has actually been going away as of late, but, but just for illustrative purposes. If I, if I buy small stocks and I short yeah. big stocks, so I, I have sort of a, a right. zero cost portfolio, we like to say, because I'm using the money from the short to pay for the long, that, that portfolio will generate a, a positive return over the next year, yep. right? And, and so there's yep. many characteristics like size, profitability, investment, and on and on and on, whereby I can, I can sort of form these, these uh, zero-cost portfolios and, and generate some excess return. And all we're saying is that, you know, as soon as you apply those strategies out of the sample in which they were found, they seem to go away yeah. now to a statistician or or you know a computer scientist who does machine learning or ai this is obvious <laughs> because right because you, you would never <laughs> validate a model in sample right but but by <laughs> the nature the virtue of the way this literature uh, has developed out of sample testing really wasn't emphasized and it's getting a lot more attention over the last decade or so. Yeah. Right. Okay. I, I remember, uh, Michael, there was the Pharma French um, idea, right? A small, small firm uh, effect. Uh, and so did they actually find even controlling for small firm effect, you still have some sort of... Uh, inexplicable alpha? You, you do. So, so, so Fama French have had a number of different models, the three-factor model, the five-factor yeah. model. I, I, I'm not sure what factor they're up to now. Um, but um, the, the whole point of their, their, I think, the point of their story, though, is, is you have to be a little bit careful, is that it's not an anomaly in, in their view. Rather, what's going on is these are just additional risk factors. Smaller firms are riskier, right. and henceforth, they should earn a higher return. Uh, you know, if you, if you think about sort of value growth, right, value are riskier, so they should earn a higher return. And, and so whether they're an anomaly or their compensation for risk is, in some sense, a matter of perspective. Um, I think the point we were trying to make in this paper is that regardless of your perspective, the sort of the, the validity of these, of these returns or these alpha that these strategies were, were generating seems to be in large part, but not entirely for some of them, in large part an artifact of the particular sample in which they were found. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like you say, uh, it seems somewhat obvious, um, you know, for for folks who are involved in machine learning and things like that. Uh, it's always the case, you know, overfitting has always been a, an issue. Uh, that that is uh, that's important there, uh, but but you also say in the paper, uh, Michael, that a few anomalies that do persist out of sample correlate with a shift from investment in physical capital. To intangible capital and the increasing reliance of debt financing over the 20th century. So the, the first point there, um, the, the anomalies that are that are persisting out of sample um, correlate with the shift from investment in physical capital to intangible capital. Can yeah, so that a bit? We, we look at a whole bunch of different anomalies. And while many of them, I, I think, can be yeah. plausibly explained by data snooping, uh, a number sort of persist in sample and out of sample. And, and then that begs the question, Gil, of 
well, well, why? What's behind these sort of persistent anomalies? What, what's the, what are the economics behind them? And it, it's actually really interesting. If you look at the anomalies that exist in the first half of the 20th century, they're closely related to real investment, physical investment. So things like investment in plant, property, and equipment or inventory. Um, but then if you look at the anomalies that exist in the second half, they have much more to do with uh, profit and loss, P&L measures, things like sales and earnings. And so when we try and understand, when we try and put these two findings together, what, why, did, why was one set of anomalies important in the first half of the century and another set important in the second half? You know, it, it goes back to the paper we were just talking about, Gil, the 100 Years of Capital Structure. It seems to be that when the economy was yeah. much more physically, much more capital intensive, intensive. In other words, the economy was much more industrial, right? That's when anomalies predicated on things like physical capital and inventory, tangible assets, uh, took hold. But as we moved into a service, more service-based economy, an economy based on more heavily on intangible assets, right? Intellectual capital, IP, uh, brand, trademarks, these sorts of things. Then the anomalies seem to shift it, seem to shift towards more PL measures where you know sales and marketing and that type and RD spend shows up. So that's the connection yeah. there between yeah. these sort of anomalies and risks with sort of the underlying economics of what's happening in the economy. Yeah, that, that makes that, that makes intuitive sense, Michael. I, I wrote a couple of books in 2009 in which I argued uh, physical capital, if companies are investing in physical capital, mm -hmm. that will have negative return mm -hmm. in the future. Uh, physical yep. capital meaning dumb machines, right? Um, machines will become, all the investments into smart machines are going to have returns. Uh, and... And I also argued human capital will have negative return uh, because humans will be replaced. Well, <laughs> by, I, by... I think I think we're sort of seeing that play uh -huh. out, aren't we, Gil? Yeah, yeah. So, so I want to ask you this. So, we are sort of a regime change in the sense that just like you found a sort of a change from physical capital to intangibles. I, I think we are moving from what we used to consider intangibles into, it's kind of ironic, uh, the, the, it is going to be physical in the sense that we smart machines, right? So, so there is investments needed back into physical capital, but it's a very different type of physical capital. Um, and companies who uh, do a lot of investments in humans, human capital, uh, may find that difficult to do. So, so, so what, what uh, just speculate a bit. Uh, do you think that that type of a notion is true? And if so, what do so you think will I, happen? I do. Uh, I'm not a huge fan of, of prognosticating or forecasting, which is why I'm an academic. But <laughs> but since you asked, I'll, I'll certainly play along. Um, I, I think your I think your character <laughs> characterization is accurate, and uh, but I think I think there's some nuance to it, right? That, that that's probably in the background of what you're thinking, which is. I think the nature of the physical capital in which companies are investing has been changing. And so the, the plant property equipment um, is shifting towards server farms and, and robots, automation, right? Which is, as you noted, rightly noted, is, right. is replacing a lot of human capital. On the other hand, there's a different type of boom in human capital that needs to program and, and design that automation, those server farms, the programs that are gonna run these robots. Now I'll go one step further, yeah. which is what, what, I, what I'm currently seeing is all the programmers are, program, are, are, are starting to program themselves out of jobs because pretty right. soon, I mean, yeah. it's already happening. In fact, I, I see it at Penn, uh, at Wharton, as well as our engineering school, 
um, a lot of a lot of programming, simple programming tasks are are being com yeah. are being accomplished by other programs. Right, programs are writing themselves. Yeah. Another good example, Gil, is in the machine learning AI space. Um, programmers are basically automating machine learning pipelines. Now, right. I, I, I do yeah. get to I do get to stand uh, get up on my soapbox for one minute here, with the following: <laughs> having done applied research now for yeah. for thirty years, over thirty years, uh, I can say unequivocally. Yeah that the need for human engagement in AI and, and machine learning will never go away, or at least it shouldn't ever go away, I think is a more accurate statement. Because what is yeah. incontrovertible is that the world changes and it changes in, in abrupt and in un unpredictable ways such that uh, machine learning algorithms and AI algorithms that are so dependent upon data, historical data and data up until point in time, simply can't either can't deal with or, or struggle greatly to, to adapt. So uh, we're not going to get rid of ourselves who, who do this work. But as you said, uh, yeah. human capital is, is being replaced quickly and, and in spaces where we might not ordinarily think it would be replaced. That's right. Yeah. I would have agreed with you, Michael, a few years ago. I, I'm sort of less convinced um, that, uh, you know, humans will not be replaced. Um, humans are <laughs> pretty problematic <laughs> in many, many respects. Uh, machines are a lot more reliable, uh, and if you make them creative, uh, they could do a lot better than humans. And we see this in engineering, as you say. We are increasingly seeing it in medicine, um, even areas like astrophysics and other areas where we think, you know, sort of pure intellectual creativity uh, drives discoveries and so on. It, it is beginning to take, you know, taken over by machines, too. Um, and the other thing I want to ask you on the managerial side, you know, I again argued probably incorrectly in 2009 that, um, you know, the, the principal agent problems we have in companies are getting worse. You know, agents tell the principals they are the greatest thing, uh, but we have no data. Uh, there, there is no counterfactual experiment that, that basically says machines couldn't do any better. Uh, in fact, uh, my, I argue that machines could do a lot better than senior managers of firms by first making random decisions and then learning from uh, feedbacks. Um, and so it, it is, It is. Uh, well, this is all speculation, Michael. It's unclear to me that we cannot replace humans in almost any job. Yeah, I, so I, I don't know if I, I, I would argue too strongly against that, Gil, I would I, I, I may yeah. want to temper it with um, you know until we can integrate some notion of ethics um, and and then that begs the question begs question whose ethics, whose morals right um, you know things start <laughs> getting really thorny and and I've got a bunch of one fantastic colleagues in my legal studies and ethics department here at Wharton, who, who are spending all their time dealing with these issues right now, um, I think we, we wanna be a little bit careful before completely handing over the reins because you're right, Gil, you know, the machines can avoid a lot of the inherent biases that we humans carry with us. Yeah. And they can solve a lot of problems uh, but they can also, as we, we've already seen, uh, create a lot of problems. Uh, yeah. Oh, create a lot of biases too. Uh, you know, uh, like you mentioned, you know, if you're training a machine learning algorithm using historical data, essentially, you know, you remember Microsoft's Twitter girl. Um, there was an incident in New York, a, an insurance company using uh, a machine learning algorithm to uh, you know, to, to prescribe the level of treatment needed for different people. And they found that African-Americans required less yeah. treatment uh, on the basis 
and they received less treatment in the past. Uh, and so, yeah, historical data that includes all the biases, if we use that uh, blindly to train machines, we will just create very systematically biased machines. So, so yeah, it's, so that's it's, a, it's that even a huge more, it's even more dangerous than that because you you could get a data set for which there is no bias per se, no no discrimination behind any of the data. But because yeah. of the sample selection or the nature of the data uh, or, or existing limitations, that can actually inject bias into future predictions. So, yeah. you know, th there's just so many considerations. I, I, I sort of share your optimism, Gil, in, in the capacity for automation and machines to solve a lot of the sh shortcomings that, that we have as humans. But I, I'm also quite cautious and wary of sort of relinquishing control for some of the reasons we've discussed here. I agree. I agree. And I think, like you mentioned, policy, uh, ex, uh, there, there is a whole uh, um, set of things that we haven't really mm -hmm. spent a lot of time on. Uh, if the gene change is going to happen, uh, that is where I think we need to focus on. Um, what would that imply for society? You know, what would uh, what would ethics mean? Uh, I I I've seen now how people react to machines when when they see machines have <laughs> feelings, you know, <laughs> emotions, and you know what does that imply uh, for society? Yeah, the whole uh, whole set of issues. I want to touch another thing in the paper. Uh, so that second part of that uh, observation was again anomalies persisting out of sample, uh, increasing reliance on debt financing over the 20th century, as we mentioned uh, in the first paper. So, so that is that is also a factor that appears to um, appears to create these anomalies. That it is, that which persist. is which again dovetails nicely with the the other paper we we discussed a moment ago. You know, a, a, as the amount of debt, in a relative sense, is increasing over the twentieth century, we see that financial distress is becoming an important, more important risk factor or anomaly, um, which again is consistent with sort of the secular trends we see in the economy. Yeah, and uh, these these things have huge impacts and discontinuities, I would imagine, right? So 2008, 2020 type discontinuity um, will the throw off the data? No, absolutely. I mean, <laughs> really there's, there's the, the data is littered with examples of periods in which these anomalies just get really, really out of whack. Uh, a good one, a good example is of the, um, the value growth anomaly flipped for quite some time. I, I can't remember the exact date, but needless to say for investment yeah. managers or hedge funds following that strategy, it created real problems. Right. Yeah, I mean, uh, because of, you know, the artificial intelligence and those types of things, now uh, value growth uh, seem to, uh, seem to um, <laughs> go back and forth every week, Michael. <laughs> you know? uh, so so I, I want to take a quick break, Michael. When Sounds we come good. back, we'll talk about your other papers. Thank you. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com. So we're back, um, Michael. We were talking about um, capital structure changes over time in the U.S. and um, how debt has become a um, lot higher uh, in corporations. Uh, and also stock returns, uh, we find some anomalies in the past. Uh, perhaps you argue it is related to overfitting of the data in sample. 
you have a couple of other papers, one of them related to what we were talking about. How does financing impact investment, the role of debt covenants? Um, you say we identify a specific channel, debt covenants, and the corresponding mechanism, transfer of control rights, through which financing frictions impact corporate investment. Um, so, so debt covenants, uh, basically, uh, these are things that uh, when, you, when you take on debt, uh, these are rules that um, the lender will impose on you, right? If, if you don't um, satisfy uh, those rules, then there are some penalties around that. Yeah, that's exactly right. So, so to, to make this more relatable, if, if anyone uh, you know, has ever taken out a loan or, or bought a, a home with a mortgage, just, just look at the contract. There's a whole bunch of things you have to do or rules yeah. you have to follow. Things you have to do, things you, 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 you can't do. Um, you can't set your house on fire. That's that you don't, you can't do that. Um, but, but there are a lot of these rules, they're called covenants. And we looked at, uh, covenants in debt contracts, uh, or loans, bank loans to firms, large corporations. Yeah. And, you know, they didn't get a lot of, they hadn't really gotten a, a lot of attention, um, and what, what we wanted to try and figure out was, do these restrictions on companies actually affect what they do? So, you know, we always think about shareholder governance, right? The board of directors yeah. and, uh, you know, the, the, the um, you know, their role in, in sort of keeping the, the company on track. Well, uh, banks and lenders, there's a sort of creditor governance and the way they execute that is through these restrictions. And so if companies violate these covenants, well, what the lender can do is they can come in and, and they can accelerate the loan, mm -hmm. demand the borrower repay it immediately. Yeah. Um, uh, or they can cut off if it's a credit line, like a credit card type borrowing, they can cut off the, uh, the rest of the, the line to the firm. It, it's this really big hammer that the lender holds over the borrower if the borrower does anything to violate the, these rules. And what we found is that it, it turns out the, the lenders use that hammer in certain situations to make borrowers change their course of action. So what happens is when borrowers run afoul of their lenders by violating covenants, and, and, and to give you a specific example, when I say violating a covenant, borrowers are restricted in how high their leverage ratio can go. Hmm. They're restricted in you know, how, you know, how much liquidity they have to have on hand. And so if their leverage gets too high, for example, or their liquidity too low, that's a covenant violation the lender steps in. Yeah. And so what the lender will have the borrower do is they'll have them quite often slow down their investment, spend less money. Mm. They'll have them borrow less money. So they won't let them borrow from other lenders. They won't let them borrow as much from their line, or they'll just ask them to slow down their borrowing. Mm. And so the net effect of this, this sort of oversight by lenders is, or this, this, this sort of control is that it has a pretty significant impact on borrowers when they start getting into trouble. Yeah, so this, so this sounds like uh, sort of the firm losing flexibility. And uh, in a world of high uncertainty, uh, losing flexibility is going to be value destroying for the firm, right? Absolutely. And, and you know, Gil, it comes back to something you mentioned before the break. It's really all about incentives, yeah. right? The, the managers have one set of incentives that's more arguably more closely aligned with shareholders, though there's debate. But regardless, the, their incentives are quite different from that of the, the lenders who don't get any upside from the firm. They're just trying to recover their interest in principle. So the lenders trying to, with these covenants, these restrictions, sort of plot a path for the borrower that will ensure that the lender gets repaid. And when the borrower gets off that path and violates a covenant, in steps in the lender to reassure that they get paid. 
Right, right. And so, so you argue here, uh, if I understand this correctly, Michael, how the state contingent allocation of control rights can help mitigate investment distortions arising from financing friction. So you're saying in the covenant um, have a, so sort of a, a set of rules that are based on uh, future states of the firm? That's exactly right. So, so what's happening is, you know, I want to make sure your leverage, let's say your, your debt to EBITDA, your leverage ratio is, is 3x now, 3, 3.0, three times. Yeah. I want to make sure that you don't get above five. And so if at any point in time, as this loan is going along, it, you reach a state of the world where your leverage spikes up above five, I want to take control. I, the lender, want to take control and start making decisions. Now, of course, the lender doesn't literally take control of the firm. They effectively take control of the firm by saying to the managers, you're either going to do what we ask or we're going to make you pay all the debt right now. Yeah. And so think about it like this, Gil. If the lender didn't have that, that ability to sort of exercise some control when things went off the rails, either they're going to charge that borrower, borrower an absurdly high interest rate, or they're just not going to lend to them at all. So while this can be costly to the borrower ex post, sort of after things happen, yeah. ex ante, it allows the financing to take place and at a reasonable rate. Because I'm I'm basically getting a commitment, a commitment by the borrower to behave. Otherwise, I'm going to come in and they're going to be punished. Right. Yeah. It's um, in, uh, when when things get really bad, though, Michael. Uh, at some point, there is some alignment of interests between the lender and the borrower, too. Right. I mean, the the lender could impose covenant and essentially the firm and not get their principal back. Absolutely, which is why these covenants are set in a manner to act as, as what uh, Doug Skinner uh, call, likes to call uh, tripwires. Yeah. And so the idea is to try and catch the firm before it's past the point of no return, right? So when, when the firm trips the covenant, I can step in, look at the current status of the firm, take a close look and say, oh, you know, this isn't a big deal. They had a temporary earning shock because of, you know, for, for reasons beyond their control or, or it's just temporary. Yeah. And so I don't I can just waive the violation and not worry about it. Or, uh oh, this looks symptomatic of a long term decline in their revenue stream. Maybe we need to start forcing them to pay back the loan early or at worst, maybe we need if they can't pay back the loan, maybe we need to step in and just liquidate this firm. And, and clearly the lender doesn't have expertise to, to figure out what might be optimum investment strategy of the firm could be. Right. So 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 how do how do you mitigate that ex ante? So that, that's the bargaining between the borrower and the lender, the, yeah. right? The lender, in, in all these agreements, there's going to be some sort of limitation on their investment strategy, whether it's a, a hard cap on the number of dollars they can spend on CapEx, or it's just a simple limitation on diversifying acquisitions. You, you can't acquire any companies outside your normal line of business, for example. So they're very broad restrictions so that they're not trying to meddle in the optimal investment strategy or, or, or operating policy of the firm. They're just trying to box the firm in just enough to let them uh, maximize value while limiting the downside to the bank. That's the key. Yeah, so, so I just suggest that um, rather than very specific um, uh, ratios, financing ratios, uh, maybe the covenants have to be more um, more strategic in nature, or do I understand that correctly? No, you're absolutely right. They're all strategic in nature, but they're 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 trying to they're trying to figure out or preempt all potential bad behavior by managers. And I, I say bad in the sense that bad in the sense of 
not in the interest of the lender, right? Yeah. So let's think about what a, a, a manager could do acting on behalf of their shareholders, but that may not be interest of the, in the interest of the lenders. They could take on a really risky investment, right? right? Which, which may be great for shareholders who benefit from all the upside, but it's terrible for lenders who only, uh, only get the downside, right? Yeah. So, or taxpayers, Michael. Uh, yes. <laughs> yes, you're you're absolutely right. Absolutely right. Yeah. So so uh, you know I'm going to think about all the different ways that that a manager can take actions that can erode or eat into my my credit, the value of my credit, and and that that ranges from you know paying big dividends to buying back lots of shares to making diversifying acquisitions to spending too much on on capex to letting my to borrowing from other other lenders and mm. so all of these different activities are all captured by different covenant restrictions in the loan document right yeah you know just thinking michael you know if um, we had some bad experience in 2008 um, with uh, with bailouts of companies um, should taxpayers uh, be uh, imposing covenants on companies taking excessive risk and coming back to Washington and looking for a bailout? That's a great question. I, I'm not sure how you would implement that yeah. uh, because there's no direct claim. So right. I think it might be a little bit difficult, but it's it's certainly something to consider. Yeah, yeah, and you know the issue there obviously is uh, sometimes firms say, "Yeah, we pay the money back." The problem is the the money was given to these firms when they were in really bad state, right? Mm -hmm. And so the return on that uh, on that investment for taxpayers have to be a lot more than one percent or two percent. Yeah, that that that's absolutely right. Look, I, I mean, this is the fundamental of fund, fundamental idea behind finance and that's risk and return if you want me to take more risk you have to offer me more return uh yeah i yeah yeah hopefully uh hopefully we won't have a repeat of 2008 um so so i want to finish up with your um more recent paper clo performance uh we study the performance of collateralized loan obligations to understand the market imperfections giving rise to these vehicles and the corresponding cause. Um, so what, what exactly is a CLO? Sure. So, um, so a CLO or collateralized loan obligation is a securitization. So yeah. th that's a, just another big word. Uh, let me explain it really simply and, and briefly. What you do is you get an individual who decides to buy from banks a bunch of their loans, okay? Yeah. And the way this individual is gonna buy those loans is by raising money from investors. Mm -hmm. But rather than just, rather than raising money from one group of investors per se, like a mutual fund, right? I give money to a mutual fund to go buy stocks in some sense. <laughs> yeah. Uh, this, this, this individual, the, the CLO manager is going to get money from a group, bunch of different groups of investors, all of whom have different claims on that pool of loans that he's buying or he or she is buying. Bit like, uh, bit like mortgages, mortgage pools? Yes, yes. So, so very, very similar. So instead of, instead of buying a bunch of mortgages, I buy a bunch of commercial loans or yeah. leveraged loans. But the trick is that the way I buy them is I issue what are called tranches. I tranche the securities, which which means part of the money goes get, comes from investors who get a triple A AAA rated debt security, and then some of the money comes from investors who get a triple B rated security, and then other investors who get a B, and and finally equity investors. And the whole idea is that as those loans, Gil, pay interest in principal, I give money to my investors in a very strict order. I give it to the AAA debt holders first, then the triple B, then the single B, and then the equity if there's anything left over. 
And so as loans start defaulting, as they did in March 2020 or, 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 or 2008, what happens is the amount of money I have to give to the investors is smaller. And so the, the, the people at the bottom of the totem pole, the equity investors and the B-rated note holders, they lose out on money first. Yeah. Okay. That's what a CLO is. That's all it is. So, um, so this, this is sort of a, a business structure. Um, uh, so, so I guess there is some diversification benefits here. Uh, you can go get a large number of loan obligations and you could have some risk diversification benefits here too. Yeah, I mean, there, there is a little bit of diversification, but there's also loan mutual funds around. So I, I can get exposure to the same pool of assets uh, just through, through a loan mutual fund. I think the real value that, that these vehicles are providing and the impetus for them comes from the difference, the, sort of the different interest rates I have to pay on that, that the loans are paying. In other words, the, yeah. the money I'm getting from the, the loan pool versus what I have to pay to the AAA note holders who, who are the bulk of the financing. And so there's a lot of extra interest that sort of trickles down the liability structure of these vehicles to equity holders. And, and, and that's what's going, that, that's primarily what's going on. It's, an, it's, it's, it's akin to an arbitrage of, of interest rates. <laughs> Yeah, so, so you say here that CLO equity tranches uh, earn positive abnormal returns from the risk-adjusted price differential between leveraged loans and CLO debt tranches yep. rather than your skill in selecting and trading loans. And so um, if I understand this correctly, Michael, the, 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 um, the entity that was holding these loans initially uh, is sending those loans to the CLO manager. Mm -hmm. um, Either that entity does not have the skills and information to extract this uh, abnormal returns themselves, or what? What else is going so, on? So, what, what's happening? It's it's actually quite interesting. So, so the banks are are, are originating these loans, right? Yeah. I, I mean, the, the banks are originating the loans, but they're originating them with a group a group of lenders, other called a syndicate. So, other yeah. banks, other institutional investors. These loans, these little loans, pieces of these loans, they trade in a secondary market, okay? So the, the banks are getting the loans off of their balance sheet. Why? Because they're risky. They come with high capital requirements, okay? So the banks get them off their balance sheets. Then the banks turn around and buy the AAA rated debt securities that the CLOs <laughs> issue. I see. And okay. so what they're doing, it's quite fascinating. When you think about it, they're getting the high risk loan off their book and replacing it for a low risk, triple A rated security. Hmm. So it's sort of getting around the regulatory requirements in terms of capital. You got it. That, that's a big that's a big role. It's, it's, it's a sort of form of regulatory arbitrage on behalf of the banks. Yeah. Yeah, it's. It's interesting. I, I mean, um, but they're losing losing something. If the CLO manager is is having you know reasonably high abnormal returns from those uh, those um, structures, uh, presumably that's that's a return that the banks could extract. Right? Yes. So the question is, why are the banks doing that? But I, again, I think this this comes down in part to a sort of regulatory arbitrage. It's, it's, it's less costly for a bank to hold that AAA rated security than that B rated loan, right? In, in terms of the capital that they have to hold. So, so, so that certainly plays an important role. The, the other reason though is just the demand for safe assets, AAA rated mm -hmm. securities, right? This comes back to the first paper we discussed. The demand for safe assets is such that there's a premium for a AAA rated security. Uh, and, and so that w whether it's because they're, I mean, it's not liquidity here, but whether there's some sort of a convenience yield, um, whether it's a money-like instrument, whatever it may be, that right drives up the price of those assets and down and hence down the yield. So that that's yet another rationale for this sort of wedge between the interest coming out of the, the assets and the, the interest they have to pay to the liabilities. Right, right. 
Yeah, so in conclusion, Michael, we, we, we talked about a lot of intermediation um, between, um, between different types of assets, loans, debt, CLOs, and so on. Uh, do you see this intermediation more broadly? And I'm putting investment banks in there. I'm putting private equity firms in there. Um, do you see, as we look forward, the need for intermediation declining or, re or getting replaced by uh, technology? So that, that's a good, <laughs> it's a good question. Uh, cer certainly, we're already seeing uh, technology replacing Interme intermediation to varying degrees in existing structures, right? I mean, I mean, just yeah. you know, log on to your retirement account. Uh, a lot of that is technology from advising and offerings. Um, but in terms of a reduction of sort of of the intermediary space, I'm not so sure that that's going to be reduced. Um, it's certainly changing form from a, a very bank dominated. Uh, sector in the 20, first, first half of the 20th century to a much more non-bank sector. I mean, if you think about private equity, if, if you think about the large private equity firms, Guild, they don't just do buyouts, right? They're full-fledged intermediaries. I mean, they've got real estate holdings. They've got credit desks. They're running CLOs. Um, <laughs> so, you know, intermediation in its broadest sense is so much larger than banks. Um, I think we're seeing a real change or dynamicism in the form and structure of intermediation, as opposed to necessarily a, a reduction in the in the size or scope. Yeah, that makes a that makes a lot of sense. Do you think there will be uh, this will lead to more participation, or uh, like you say, different types of? Uh, companies uh, coming into the absolutely, arena. Absolutely. And I mean, right. I mean, when people talk about fintech, isn't it just that? Right. Yeah. I, I, look, look at, you know, it's interesting. I was talking to someone at, at one of the bulge bracket banks. One of their, their, some of their biggest competitors now are the tech firms, Google, Apple. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, what, what intermediation is, is changing and who does it is changing dramatically. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and going back to what we were discussing before, there is probably some need for really thinking about regulation um, um, a bit more uh, differently. Right. Um, you know, the, the 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 past is not a good proxy <laughs> of the future is going. To I, I think you said it perfectly, Gil. It, it seems as if regulation is always one step behind practice. Yeah. And uh, that, that's so, so that that's going to be a challenge that I don't think is going to go away. But but, uh, you know, we'll see. Yeah. Yeah. Robin Hood is, uh, <laughs> is the, the latest phenomenon. Yeah. That, yeah. I'm not. <laughs> that's an odd one. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Thanks so much for spending time. With oh, me, the pleasure has been mine. Thank you so much, Gil. Thank you. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.